Well, have you ever heard anyone say, I have a few questions for God? And then when you hear the questions, you know inside that question will never be answered on earth. That, that you're just not going to get that one. Now, sometimes those questions are people who really want to know, but often they're questions from people who generally don't want to know. Uh, often they're statements by people who just don't like the way God runs things. They, they don't like his earth and his plan. Other times the goal is to disprove the claims of uh, Jesus Christ, the claims of Jesus claiming to be God, become a man. And that's the case what we have here in Matthew chapter 21 and 22 as the religious leaders, and in one little snippet we've already seen a group called the Herodians are coming and they are asking Jesus a variety of questions. One group after another, they don't really want to know, they are plotting against Jesus, has, has got into their what we've been calling the unholy huddle, and they get into their unholy huddle. They plot a question. They're going to ask Jesus to trick them. They approach him with a silly trick question, and they have been sent packing by Jesus. Uh, the scene is it's Passover week. Jerusalem is packed. Most Bible scholars think we are still in Tuesday, uh, three days before Jesus will be crucified on the cross. And Jesus of Nazareth, the popular prophet from Nazareth, is in the temple, and he is speaking to the people. Today we come upon the last question that they go after Jesus with to trick him, yet this one actually seems that Jesus likes the question. The other times he's like, oh, whatever, right? But he answers the questions, but here he seems to actually like it, and he's glad to answer it. And Jesus' answer is one that none of the religious leaders can challenge, yet the religious leaders, the people in the temple, and the people sitting here today and the guy talking here today, are going to be deeply challenged by Jesus' answer to this question. If you're new to the Bible, you're going to learn something fairly quickly. Uh, most of us who have been studying the Bible for a while, we, we know this. As you study the Scriptures, it's easy to see that God loves us. Now, most people go, I don't need to study the Bible to know that. Everybody knows that. But also, God expects us to love him in return. And that's where a lot of people get, get hung up. And, and how much does God love us? Well, God loves us so much that he sent his only son to show us his love, and he demonstrates his love for us. The scripture says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He, he loved us so much, he sent his son to die on the cross in our place for our sins. I've said to you many times before, I have two boys, and that's a fact. And another fact is, I love you guys but I am not going to give my two boys to die for your sins. That's just not going to happen. And my boys are, well, they're not perfect. And God's son is perfect, and he gave his son to die for us. So once again, God expects and seeks a response of our love to his love, and as we experience his love, we are then to export it to others. The title of our message today might seem a little unusual for you, especially when we get into chapter 23 and we see how much Jesus is really not all about religion. But the title of our message today is Religion from the Heart. And it's a very well-known text. Again, if, you're, if you've been around the church for a while, you have to be very, very careful in these well-known texts because our tendency is to think, I got it, I can take a nap, I can write out my to-do list for the week or something like that. And then we miss what it is that God has to say to us. And this text, although it's well-known, is deeply soul-searching. 
I mean, it is it's about as deep as you can really want to go. And it's a real uh, time for all of us to question our priorities. Are our priorities in the right place? So it begins, verse 34, but when the Pharisees, that's one group of religious leaders, heard they had silenced the Sadducees, that's another group of religious leaders, they gathered together. Interesting, that word silence really means to muzzle. In other words, when Jesus answered the question to the Sadducees in the last section, they had no idea what to even say. And, and so now the Pharisees, they see what's going on, and now the Pharisees are going to step up to the plate. And, and if you recall, they're, they're gathering together. They're getting an unholy huddle. They're, they're going to gather together to figure out how they can trick Jesus. But if you recall, back in verses 15 through 22, they had already tried. But what did they do that time? They sent the intern. They sent the interns. They sent the new guys. And they gave them the question. They sent the young bucks, along with the Herodians, who they hated, which is the party crowd, to ask Jesus about paying taxes. Jesus easily defeated them, but that's not what they're going to do now. Now the big guns themselves are going to walk up to Jesus. Now the heavy hitters are in town. They've been standing in the background, and the guys who really know the Bible are going to come up, and they're going to try and trick Jesus. Verse 35 says, Then one of them, a lawyer, now you're wondering if he's going to send Jesus a bill for this conversation or not, I don't know. Then one of them, a lawyer, Mark tells us he's a scribe. Uh, That means that he is an expert in the law of Moses. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question. So he comes up with a question. They've gathered together. They've got this question. This is the question they're going to ask. And they know that this guy, he's so good in the scriptures that when Jesus fires back at him, this guy's going to be able to answer. So they think. So they think. And it says he asked him a question testing him. There's the motivation. And saying, teacher, there's the sarcasm, the sucking up to Jesus. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Give us number one. Now, some of you are thinking Ten Commandments, but the law goes far beyond that. We'll talk about that in a second. So we've said in the past that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, two groups of religious leaders, they can't stand each other. They are united in their hatred of Jesus. And I would imagine here the Pharisees just, they they watch what happens with the Sadducees, and they are just thrilled. I mean, this is a golden opportunity for them. Uh, This is a time where they can get together, they can come now, they can think of a question, and they can do two things at the same time which they really want to do. Number one, they can make the Sadducees look really bad. So they can make the opposing party of the main religious, two main religious leader parties look bad, and they can make Jesus look bad as well. But again, no intern this time. They're not sending the intern, they're sending in the heavy hitter to win. They're coming in to win. They're coming in to stump Jesus, to stomp on Jesus, and to send Jesus back to Nazareth packing. Sizing them up, you're standing there, you're just sort of observing what's going on. It seems like no competition. A highly, highly educated lawyer scribe, religious scholar from the city, the guy who knows it all, is matched up against a country carpenter. And they say the people from Nazareth, had the the Galilee area had this funny accent. 
So it's a fellow talking like this to Jesus, and Jesus said, hey, y'all, bring on your question, right? <laughs> so that's, what, that's what's going on here. And so you think, well, this is not going to be long. I'm glad we didn't buy tickets to this. I'm glad we have to pay for this because this won't be going on too long. Now, the religious leaders um, like to rank the 613 commandments or laws of the Old Testament. So just let, let's not think 10 commandments. Let's think they're talking about the 613. They like to order them in the order of importance. And, and there was a lot of disagreement on the order of importance. Now, here's how the breakdown went. 248 were considered positive commandments, and 365 were considered negative now, that's the opposite of the church in America. We want 613 positive, and we don't want any negative. Nobody wants to hear anything, anything bad anymore. Uh, but, and the religious leaders also tried uh, to make summary statements about different groups of commandments, but that is not that easy a thing uh, to do. So they typically divided the law, these commandments, into what they called the light and the weighty. The idea was not to neglect some of them. They, they really wanted to scrupulously keep these commandments, but they really wanted to have their priorities right. They wanted to make sure that they got the weightier ones correct so they would look good, uh, as so they thought, in God's eyes. Uh, and, and to be honest, in some ways, I think we have to admit that the Pharisees' commitment to practically outliving uh, the law of God was commendable but some of the ways they went about it and some of the things going on in their heart was not commendable at all. So here this fellow comes up to Jesus, and he is going to test him. Now, you think, well, what do you mean he's going to test him with the Bible? Uh, They knew that Jesus' views on the Old Testament were considered very, very radical for his day. And the reason that they were so radical was because everybody else was wrong. It's not like it's not like Jesus was like, oh well, hey, I, you know, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna fix this, and, and and he's not saying, oh, Moses was wrong or something like that. No, he so would often say, you know, you've heard it said, you've heard bad teaching before, and now I'm telling you the way it was intended, the way God meant it to be, and so they think these guys, these Pharisees, these religious leaders think they have Jesus right where they want him, and they ask him which is the greatest commandment in the law. Now, in their mind, they've got them. They've got them. There's 613. No matter which one he picks, some people will object and find fault. Now, let's just stop there for a very practical lesson for talking to people about Jesus Christ. First off, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, really glad that you're here. I'm actually thrilled that you're here. Hope to get a chance to meet you after the service. Please come up and say hello. And, and so, but, but if you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to talk to people and with some people, no matter what you say, they are going to object. Do we understand that? Really? Because you're going to get in the car, and the other guy's going to go, see, you idiot. That's what happens when you talk to Jesus. You've got to leave that to the heavy hitters like Pastor Jim, right? It's like some of you call me out, you send me a text, hey, I want you to meet the guy in the next cubicle to me at work. And I'm like, why? God gave him to you, not me. Right? So, 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 you know, I got my own people I got to talk to. And so, so they're, they're there. They're, people, they know that people are going to find fault. And what they want to do is they want to ruin Jesus' reputation with a lot of these people. But the question is not as odd as we might think. I mean, let's be honest. Aren't we all guilty of picking and choosing which commandments we want to obey and which we don't? 
We're all, we're all guilty of that. You know, my mother, my own mother, she, she's Catholic. She calls herself a, Catholic, a cafeteria Catholic. I'm like, what does that mean, Mom? She means, she says, I put my tray and I go down the row of Roman Catholicism and I pick which things I like and which things I don't. <laughs> right? And you know, we can all be cafeteria Christians. You know, we, I don't, it doesn't matter which brand you are, which tribe you're from, we can all be that way. We can all say, well, yeah, I'll do that one, but I don't know about that one. Or, you know, oh, God will forgive me. It won't really matter. And so we have to be really careful. And Jesus' answer is absolutely beautiful, but I fear that for some of us, this passage is so common that we really miss what he is saying and how radical it is what he is saying and God has been saying for centuries, and we have to pay really close attention. So if you're taking notes, there's going to be three divisions we're going to use in this passage. And number one is, Jesus says, love your God. What's the greatest commandment? He says, love your God. In verse 37, he says, Jesus said to him, he said, there's no great commandment. It's not important. It's all about grace. God forgives everything. Why do you care about such stuff? Jesus doesn't say that at all. A lot of people going around saying that stuff today. Jesus doesn't say that at all. Jesus said to him, and then he quotes Deuteronomy 6, 5, which was spoken to the Israelites as they were going into the promised land, making the second attempt to go in after wandering the wilderness for 40 years. And he quotes Deuteronomy 6, 5, you shall love the Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And he adds in verse 38, this is the first and great commandment. Now, most of us have heard this many times before, and we think, okay, my heart, my soul, my mind. I got it. I got it. No problem. No problem. What about the word all? What about the word all? I mean, that's a really problematic word for all of us, right? He's not like, not with, with, with some of your heart or when you feel like it. It's with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. I'm going to be honest with you, and I don't mean to be mean, maybe blunt, but, but I mean to be mean. If you think you do that, you're nuts. I mean, you really, you need to be in a straitjacket, right? Because none of us do that. None of us do that. That's why Jesus had to come, because Jesus did it 24-7, which is the most amazing thing in the world to me. That's more amazing to me than rising people from the dead, to be honest with you, and healing all the sick people, that he was able to live in a 24-7, completely sold-out trust relationship with his heavenly Father. Now, it's very interesting, Jesus' answer. Back in chapter 19, Jesus was asked about marriage. What did he do? He took them back to Genesis 1 and 2, and he told them God's original intent for marriage. Now they ask him, what's the most important question? And he takes them back to Deuteronomy, and and, and we think, well, why, why, why is he doing that? In essence, what he's doing them is he's taking them back to when they were toddlers. He's taking them back to when they were in pre-K class. He's taking them back to the very first thing that their mommy and daddy taught them. Like this, 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 what this statement here, we'll be talking about in a second, is the very first thing that they would learn, and they would recite it twice a day. They're on the edge of the promised land. 
And Moses isn't going in. He's not going in. And Moses gives this great sermon, and he stands up before all the people of God, and he says this. When you go into that land, be very, very careful of this. Be careful you do not forget how the Lord saved you. Be careful. You're going you're gonna to be tempted by all these other people, all these other things. Don't go with them. Remember. Remember we were slaves in Egypt. Remember how God delivered us. Remember who we used to be and remember who we are now and do not lose your identity when you mix with these sinful people. And so they learned this part in Deuteronomy called the Shema. And it would be something that they would recite daily and they would teach to their kids. And the Shema begins by telling us that the Lord is one. The Lord is one. And then it goes on to the application. The application of that is you are to love him with everything you have. And then after that, he goes on to the duty of that love is to teach that to your children. Teach that to your children. In other words, make the the, the acknowledgement of God, the love of God, and the passing it on to others, your children, the next generation, other people who don't know Jesus, make that the real priority of your life. Make that your life. Everything will, 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 will flow out of that. You know, people say all the time, like, well, but, but you don't understand, Pastor Jim. I have bills. Oh, really? You have bills? Really? I got some too. You want mine? Right? Of course, we all have bills. People are like, you don't understand. I have bills. I have priorities. I have responsibilities. What did Jesus tell us way back in Matthew 6, 33? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. As someone once put it, God said, you take care. Jesus said, you take care of my business, and I will take care of your business. You do, you do what you're supposed to do, and I will make sure that, that you are okay. And so once again, three times, the, the, the word all is mentioned. In other words, our love for God must be wholehearted. It must involve all that we are and all that we have. God's wholehearted love towards us, towards you, loved one, not just towards me, not just towards the people around you, towards you, God's wholehearted love towards you must be met with a wholehearted love towards God. It is not to be met with a half-hearted love towards God from us. In the Old Testament, it's interesting, it said strength. Jesus changes the word here to mind. And Jesus substitutes mind or or understanding, and he says it's not a physical thing. It's in your head. It's in your thinking. And if we do this thinking, this love, this religion from the heart will result in obedience to God's commands. Now, this is a moment. I got to take a moment, and some of you are going to be glad there's air conditioning in here. He's not talking about some show up at church twice a month kind of Christian living. He's talking about with everything you got. Either, either the call of the scriptures is either you're all in or you're not in. There's no, there's no half-hearted Christianity. If you're new and you're exploring, I get it, I understand it, you have to learn that, but it's better on the front end that you understand what, what God wants from you. 
that the people going to heaven that are alive on earth right now are, have a wholehearted devotion. Now, you have a wholehearted devotion in your work, in your family, in, in everything that you do. You, you, get the, you can get the mail with wholehearted devotion. You know, Lord, thank you I have a mailbox. I don't have to go down to the post office. Right? Whatever it is. Whatever it is. And so we are to love God with everything that we have. And it's not like we, we go to church when we can or, or, or th- something like that. That's a compartmentalized faith. The Lord is talking about a real faith where you're, forget about, you, yes, you come to worship the Lord on Sundays, but, but the rest of the week, you're living your life. You're going to your job. You're doing everything for the glory of God. This is, this is the, the giving of yourself to God. This is not some goofy, syrupy Hollywood love. You know, <laughs> I watch these movies. I'm like, you're kidding me, man. It's like, you know, these people, they leave their spouses and their families and they go off with somebody else and like, oh, it's the greatest love, you know? And then I got the family in the pastor's office. I'm like, oh, it's the greatest love. You know, what are you kidding me? And it's not that at all. This is the giving of the entirety of oneself and one's life to God. This is the constant pursuit of God. This is listening to him. This is learning from him. This is trying to understand him. This is following him. This is chasing him. And yes, this is obeying him. In, in Luke and Mark's gospel, we get these great, this great contrast. Remember we talked about the money changers that were in the temple? Well, there's a story that, that, that's not in Matthew, that's in Mark and Luke that really contrasts this well. The money changers do not love God. They do not love God. And the religious leaders don't love God. They're growing up throwing all their rich, man, because they're milking the people for the money, and they're throwing their money in the offering plate, and they're all looking at me, looking at what a great job I'm doing. And then this one woman walks up there with two little pennies. She throws them in, and Jesus is stunned. Jesus is like, come here, come here. Did you see that? Did you see that? She put in everything that she had everything that she had. And Jesus does not impress easy. And he cannot believe what he just saw. That's the kind of love that he's talking about. And so here, here's the challenge. We may have heard this text thousands of times before, but I've been asking myself this all week. Have I really heard it? I've heard it a thousand times. I can't tell you how many times I've read it. But did I really hear it? Did my heart really hear it? And it's, such a, it's, so, it's so convicting and it's so challenging. God must be first. And not only just first, God must be overall. Don't even compartmentalize God. Like, well, I do my quiet time in the morning and you know, then I go out and rip off everybody in the business world. That's not it. That's compartmentalizing faith. God wants his people to be the real deal. The bad news is that, that wrong priorities... Pursuits put before God. And again, what are those things? In America, work, family, sleep, relationships. You fill in the blanks. We could go on forever in it. Those things, while not always bad in and of themselves, are sometimes wonderful gifts of God in and of themselves. When they become our God, when they take the priority in our lives, they will destroy our love for God. Not hurt it, not compromise it. They'll actually destroy it. And that's why you have so many people walking around 
that, that are claiming to be followers of God, and there's no evidence of it at all in their lives. None. Why? Because those other things have become more important. Again, even good things, even great things. So now, here's the question. Can we love God perfectly? No. But the good news is, as we try to love God with all that we are, this is what happens. The Holy Spirit increases our love for God. So, so we make the effort, and the means of grace of the Word of God and prayer and all the different things that we do, you know, becoming friends with one another, encouraging one another, that kind of stuff, what happens? As we do those things, God increases our love for him. Then the entirety of the Christian life is lived out of that love, not empowered by determination or willpower, but empowered by the Holy Spirit and the power of the word of God. And so that's the first thing Jesus says. You want to know what's the greatest thing you need to do? You need to love God. Everything's going to flow out of that. Then interesting, number two, he says, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor, verse 39. And the second, Jesus says, is like it. Now, while before he quoted something very, very well known, now he goes into a bit of obscurity here, and he quotes just part of Leviticus 19.18. He says, and the second is like it. And again, this is the writing of Moses. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, typically to the Jews of this time, uh, your neighbor was your fellow Jew. They weren't doing so good at that. So, but <laughs> Jesus broadens it, though, when he taught the parable of the Good Samaritan. The parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus says, basically, that is, that is anyone and everyone. So as we love God, which was point number one, the Holy Spirit empowers our love, and we start to begin to see and to love people the way God does. In other words, God's love comes to us, flows through us, out to others. God uses us to love other people because we're, we're a tangible representation to people of the love of God. In other words, divine, the divine love of God that is filling us then fuels our love for others. Now, I, I don't have time to go here with this, but, but honestly... I know a lot of people say you should love your neighbor as yourself, and they turn it into a sermon on loving yourself. All right. Do I really need to tell you anymore? A uh, silly example. Picture comes and you're in it. Who's the first person you look for? <laughs> you love your, we all love ourselves. That's assumed. That's assumed. You know, people, people just they, they, they think they don't love themselves. We all do. That's part of the problem that we have. And notice both commandments contain the word shall. They're not suggestions. You shall do this. Really interesting that this, this quote here out of Leviticus, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, comes right after, it's in the same sentence, essentially, as not bearing a grudge against someone. I mean, it's just so incredibly practical. Now, Jesus answer was probably not earth-shattering to the people in the temple. It would have been like some of you might be sitting here right now. We know this. We know this. But the combination of the two would have been earth-shattering, that we would combine, because most of us separate loving God and loving people. 
And Jesus puts them right together. And some of us are, are really good at loving God and not so good at loving people. And some of us are good at loving people, but not so good at co- loving God. And God says, Jesus says, you don't disconnect the two. You don't disconnect the two. The two go hand in hand. And so for a lot of us, there's a distinction, but, but we have to realize there's no division. The two are carefully linked. It's almost like Jesus is looking at these guys saying, how could you, how could you call yourselves followers of God and not know this? I mean, it's all over the Old Testament. So in verse 38, Jesus said that loving God was the greatest commandment. But he adds, you can't do that. You can't love God without loving your neighbor. You just can't do it. Now, many of us heard people say stuff like this. I love God, but I hate people. Okay. This is another one a lot of us have said in the past, and people say all the time, I love God, but I hate the church, which I always say, oh, so basically you want to invite Jesus over your house, but not his wife. <laughs> hey, Jesus, come on over, but don't bring your wife. You know, well, it's, a, it's not much of a dinner invitation, is it? And people say, oh, I don't, I don't need a church. I always say, well, well, then you must throw out a lot of your Bible, because if you take the parts of the Bible that are written about the people of God, <laughs> you're left with about a 20-page Bible. The whole Old Testament's written about that. And the New Testament, the letters of the apostles are basically, you know, written to the church and, and how we're to do church and how we're to get along with one another and, and the theology that we're all supposed to be encouraging one another with. So what, 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 do, what, do, you, what do you say to people that say, I, I love God, but I hate people, or I love God, but I hate the church? What do you say? You know what I tell them? You're much nicer than me. You wouldn't do this. I always go, yes, you know what? God says you're a liar. Like, what? I'm like, God says you are a liar. They're like, that is bold. I said, I know. That's why I didn't say it. That's why God said it. First John 4:20. If someone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Hmm, what does that mean? <laughs> like, what's he trying to say? Sometimes the Bible is people are like, I don't understand the Bible. Yeah, the, no, the problem is a lot of times we do understand the Bible, right? That's a bigger problem. And so he says, and he says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? Now that, that, that's, that's why we need to be part of each other's lives. The Apostle Paul wrote this, Romans 13, 9. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. And this is after Jesus has already ascended back to heaven. You shall not commit adultery. He's, he's quoting Moses. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, did you see what he's doing here? He's just ripping off Jesus. That's what he's doing. I can't tell you how many of you meet me at the, at the doorway on the way out, and they go, oh, that was really wonderful. Thank you so much. I go, I didn't do anything. I ripped off Jesus. Like, I didn't, none of that was me, right? I'm just telling you what he said. I'm just the bearer of, of the word, right? And, and that's what we are. We, we are to be people who bring the word to people. We used the illustration before. We are not the cooks. We are the waiters. God cooks the meal, and we serve it to people. And you do that in your work. You do that in your job. You do that in a community. That's part of loving your community. It's part of loving people. So how do you love people? 
Well, that's one way. There's so many different ways. Be kind. Be helpful. Think the best of people. We could go on and on. In the church, we're commanded to serve one another in love. How can you do that if you're not part of a church? You can't. You simply can't. We're commanded to serve one another in love. Well, how do you love the world? (laughs) Don't drink and drive. Don't do drugs. Pay your taxes so the rest of us pay less. Or the government can waste more money. <laughs> you know, all different ways we can, we can love people. It comes down to this in a lot of ways. See that you and I have a responsibility to other people. Do your best to keep your word. In the workplace, be a good worker. Work hard. You, this is what I hear from people all the time. We experience it here, too, uh, more, uh, you know, sometimes on Sunday mornings. Do, do any of you have somebody who calls in at the last minute sick and you're in this mad scramble then? A lot of us have that. And then they preface it by, yeah, I've been sick for the last three days, and, and so, so I figured it's better home if I stay home today. You're like, why did you tell us that? <laughs> why didn't you just tell us yesterday? You weren't feeling too good, so we're not all scrambling. And so be careful of that. You know, make an effort to make the lives of people around you easier. Don't give other people your work to do. That's not loving them. That's not loving them. Galatians 6.10 says this, Therefore, as we have opportunity. Now, a lot of people say, well, I don't have any opportunities to help people. If you're looking, you're overwhelmed by the amount of opportunities. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially those who are of the household of faith. Notice, do good. That's a statement of action. That's that's a call to serve. That's a call to serve. So we go from loving your God to loving your neighbor. And verse 40 is a very debated verse, so I'm just going to make up my own application. So number three is love your Bible. Love your Bible. He says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, Jesus says the entirety of what we call the Old Testament, that was their Bible, uh, hangs on the loving God and loving people. Now, here's where some of us are really going to have to make an, a shift and an adjustment in the way we're thinking about the Old Testament. Sadly, The Old Testament, or what it's sometimes referred to as the law, gets a bad rap in many Christian circles. Just think about what you're saying if you say the Old Testament's no good. You're saying, I didn't like Jesus' Bible, the one that he learned when he was a little kid growing up. I didn't like the Apostles' Bible before before that they were learning. As they were going out planting churches, they were teaching, you know, showing people where Jesus was in the Old Testament. And, and so Jesus and the apostles, they love the Old Testament. And so think for yourself, how do you think about it? How do you think about it? Now, I believe with all of my heart that we should love the law of God. We should love its commandments and its limitations that it puts on us. Why? Because we love the Lord. And if he said it, We want it to be part of our lives. Now, some part of it we're no longer under. The book of Galatians makes that clear. 
We're no longer people wandering in the wilderness, so there's certain things that they were told not to do that we're no longer applied to, but the moral law still applies to us. And, and we know, we know this, that love comes with restrictions. It just does. If you don't know it and you're married, ask your spouse, right? Love comes with restrictions. You don't go hanging out all night long till 4 o'clock in the morning or something like that with your friends partying, you know, seven nights a week like you did when you were single, some of you. Why? Because love comes with restrictions. And God says, I love you, and if you're going to love me in return, there are going to be restrictions I'm going to put on your life because our love has restrictions. And that's legit. That's legit. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. And so the law helps us understand what it means to love God. And now that law is expressed towards others. Now, this is what the count, I, I could already feel some of you saying it there. You're like, well, we're not old or under Old Testament law. You're, you're not under the penalties for Old Testament law. That is true. But Galatians tells us that we are under the law of Christ. <laughs> That's a higher plane. That's a higher plane. Remember, remember the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus says, hey, you know, Moses said you shouldn't commit adultery. I say, if you think about it, you just did it. Oh, <laughs> you know, really? Try and find a person innocent on that. And so, and so he's, he's lifting it, he lifts it up higher, the law of Christ. A simple way to progress in loving your Bible is to realize this. If you love your Bible, you will read your Bible. And if you love God, you will want to spend time with him. That's why I don't use the term quiet time. I use the term FaceTime with Jesus. Because when you think of it that way, you're able to discuss with people what a relationship with Jesus really is. That I hear from him that I learn from him, that I, that I talk to him. And people go, you're nuts. And you go, could be, could be. Or you could be wrong. Or you could be wrong. As you read your Bible, you read it, you read certain things, even Old Testament, New Testament, you hear certain commands. Uh, ask yourself this simple question. How does obeying this help me love God more? How does obeying this help me love other people more? Simple thing that you, you see all the time. We see all the time. Let's say you're a person and you are easily offended. Everything offends you. Ask yourself this. Are you overflowing with the love of God for others? Or are you seeking the acclamation of others? Are you seeking the affirmation of others? Or, or something else really going on? Did you really do it for God? Or did you do it for you? Did you do it to serve or did you do it to impress people with, with the job that you did? Let's say you serve God. You say, no, I serve God. I serve God. I don't care what the other people think. Well, obviously we want people to not dislike us. But if your service to God feels like a burden, there's a very good chance that it's not being done in love. Why? Because love makes service light. It just does. 
It doesn't see, it's, a, it's a labor of love, and a labor of love is not burdensome, is it? I'm not saying it might not be hard or tedious or difficult or time-consuming or tiring, but you're motivated by love. You're motivated by grace. You're motivated by the Spirit of God to do it. Amy Carmichael, the well-known missionary in India who went home to be with the Lord about 60 years ago, said this. She said, you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. You see, if you love, you will be a giver. I'm not just talking about money. That's part of it. But if you love, you will be a giver. You will love to give to others in any way that you can as a reflection of, as, a, as an outpouring of the love that God has shown to you. And so remember, the commandments in the Bible are an expression of the love of God. And so that's a, there's a choice that we all have to make. And I would I would appeal to you to make this choice today. Choose today to enjoy the discovery process. When you hear something and you're like, I don't know about that, God, then just stop. Forget about your Bible reading plan. It's okay. Just stop or write down that verse and put it in a, in, on an index card or on your phone or something like that and carry it with you all day. And just, just say to God, God, I really need to, I need to help you. You need to help me discover this. What, what is it that you're trying to say to me? Because religion from the heart is love. Again, it's not Hollywood, syrupy love, but it's a love for God and people. And as you engage in the love of God and people, it will, it will really begin to help you understand the word of God and really begin to help you live out the word of God. You see, obedience without love is merely what? Just following rules. And anybody can do that. It's a sterile religion that, that God does not desire. But obedience to the word of God with the love of God in your heart is loving God with all we are and with all we have. And the whole of the Bible hangs on that love. That love that God has for us and then that love that we return to him and is also expressed in love towards others. It's fair to say in this often assumed text that here we have something that is at the heart of Christianity. And here's the challenge for all of us. Friends, is it in our heart? Is this the desire of our heart to love God at this level and to let it be expressed to other people that way? Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, there's things that are very difficult for you to understand here, and I get that. I get that, or if you're new, I get that. And the answer really comes down to this simple thing. The word of God changes our hearts from the inside out. Something comes from the outside into us, and then it's inside of us, and then it begins to go outside of us. We're motivated by Jesus' love for us. We're motivated by Jesus' love for others, including his enemies. Remember on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus' love was not a stingy love, but it was an all-out giving of himself to his Father, and to all of us. And my prayer for each and every one of us that's here today and listening, wherever you're listening, is that that love of Jesus for us and for others would awaken our souls, would awaken our hearts. We often say, 
that Jesus lived a perfect life in our place, that he was the perfect sacrifice for sins. Why was that necessary? It's necessary because God requires that these commandments be lived out perfectly 24-7. And again, since we couldn't do it, that's why he sent Jesus. And Maybe you're sitting here today, and you're saying, man, I can never love God perfectly. I know I can't. And I can't love people the way Jesus did. I know I can't. Jesus came to earth and loved in your place. He loved God perfectly in your place for you. He loved his neighbor as himself in your place for you. So your failure and my failure was absorbed on Jesus Christ on the cross. He even loved his enemies, those who rejected him and crucified him. And many of us can testify to the fact that at one time in our lives, we were enemies of God. We were enemies of the cross. Jesus said this the night before he was crucified, John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. And in just a few days, from where we are today on the cross, the world will see it. The whole world will see just how much God loves the world. And then he says in verse 14, the next verse, Jesus looks at his apostles and says, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Let me ask you, friend, are you a friend of Jesus? Are you motivated by his love and by his grace to obey what he commands you? In Exodus 13, Moses again said to the people, he said to the people, listen, when, when, you're, when you're walking with your kids and they say to you, tell us what it was like in Egypt, mommy. Tell us what it was like in Egypt, daddy. When they ask you about your deliverance, Moses said, Exodus 13, 14, you tell them by the strength of the hand of the Lord, he brought us out of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. In other words, he says, when your kids ask you, tell them the story of what the Lord did for his people. For a follower of Jesus, if you want to be different, don't leave here today in despair. Don't leave here today saying, I'm going to try harder. Remember, the same thing that Moses told them to tell their kids. Remember. Remember the cross. Remember the resurrection. And trust him. And trust him. And then you will be empowered to obey him. If people then start to ask you why you are different, tell them the story. Tell them the story of God become a man. Tell them the story of the cross. Tell them the story of the resurrection and what Jesus Christ did for his people and invite them to put their trust in this Savior. And if that's you, and if you are here today and you have never put your trust in him, or you're not sure if you're going to heaven, or you think you've done something so bad that God could never forgive you, they killed him and he forgave them you want the forgiveness of sins and you want eternal life you want to know God and you want to experience Jesus Christ at the heart level turn to God 
put your trust in Jesus Christ and begin a new life today. Have a fresh start. Come up front here after the service and pray with someone and say, I want to begin today where I feel like I've committed a sin that God could never forgive me. I just want you to pray for me. And begin again. Begin fresh. And experience God in a brand new way. Well, let's stand and pray.